Welcome to the Irish Society of Stage and Screen Designers podcast. Each episode covers different aspects of scenography and its processes with designers from all disciplines at a variety of stages in their careers. These podcasts are possible thanks to the Design and Crafts Council of Ireland. Welcome back to Stage Left. In this episode, we talk about the impact of COVID-19 with Liam Duna and Jura Clancy, both designers and lecturers at the Leary Institute of Art, Design and Technology, IABT. I am Noelia Ruiz and it was a real privilege to have this very insightful conversation with Liam and Jer. It was recorded back in December, just before the third nationwide lockdown. In this conversation, there are deep reflections on how the pandemic has affected the sector in multiple ways, how it has made it very evident that the arts ecosystem needs rethinking since a vast majority of people working in the arts are in a precarious position and its consequent impact on mental health. How it has affected the nature of teaching and forced to reinvent teaching methodologies and how important it is to educate children from a young age to be creative and appreciate the arts in order to have sustainable long-term models in state legislation. And finally, how creative thinking has been adopted in recent years by corporate models as a key element not just to develop new products, but also to create better working environments. Overall, Jer and Liam make excellent reflections on the lessons we should learn from this unprecedented situation. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, thank you so much for being here today for this new episode of Stage Left, focusing on the impact of COVID. Since you are both joining me from IADT, I think it would be great to start this conversation by reflecting a bit on such impact on teaching. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing how, how deeply and profoundly it has impacted actually, because you, you're reminded, I suppose, just how central human contact is to teaching and to being in a room with people and having a kind of um, convivial social relationship with them, with them as much as anything else. I mean, in that sense, it's very like a piece of theatre. You know, you need, you need an audience, you need a group of people to work with. Um, so at that level of things, it's, it's been incredibly challenging. And um, what, it, what it's meant, I think, is that we've all, students and staff alike, We've had to learn a whole new set of skills really quick uh, in, in order to keep the train on the tracks. And I suppose the good thing that's come out of it, or one of the good things that's come out of it, is um, just just how inventive people have been in order to keep the keep the show on the road. Um, how consistent the students have been in their enthusiasm to get on campus when they can, and you know, to to make believe it's you know it's like the real world whenever they can. Um, But, but certainly, I mean, it's, it's blown out of the water most of the things that we took as being absolutely central to the business of teaching, I think. And particularly, you know, for, for disciplines like ours, for theatre and film, which are entirely about working in groups, you know, entirely about collaborating. It's a little bit different if you're learning to be a photographer or a graphic designer or something where you might more reasonably, you know, work on your own and, and work in a kind of screen-based environment. Um, But I think for theatre and film, it's, you know, it's down there a kind of existential challenge. 
Yeah, and I mean, I'd add to that as well that it's, you know, it's a collaborative art form, but it's also in college, it's quite a collaborative learning process where you have a lot of peer-to-peer -peer kind of group learning activity and sharing going on. And I think that working remotely, um, in one way, it weeds out a little bit of, the, you know, if you, if you do an online group tutorial where all the students are, are, are showing or talking about their ideas to one another, um, you know, it means people have to be quite concise and quite direct in what their ideas are and communicating that. So it cuts out a bit of the waffle. But um, the, the negative side is all the incidental stuff that happens in college when they're all in one campus together and there's, there's this kind of like, you know, we deal with a lot of materials and surfaces and, and I think it's the, the conversations over coffee which, which um, make it a little bit difficult for the students mm. in the kind of current learning environment. But, you know, I think that's... It, is, uh, it certainly has forced us to be more inventive um, in terms of how we're delivering it um, and possibly using you know, more up-to-date technologies as well that certainly the younger folk were already using and some of their platforms, um, but also trying to deliver it um, in a way that it, 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 I suppose, is more accurate possibly because it is true sometimes through PDF presentations or uh, spoken word presentations. You can't kind of gesture as much and get, get your ideas across. So in what way has it forced you to be more creative? Before all this happened, we, you know, we took, we took the kind of normal day-to-day -day intimacies very much for granted. You know, you would, you'd be chatting with people all the time and bumping into corridors, into people in corridors and all that kind of thing. And um, a huge amount of our lives are to do with bumping into people in corridors and having tea and those kinds of things. Suddenly when that's gone, I think it puts, it puts a real pressure on the moments of contact that you are going to have. And I think, I, I think, I think where Joe is absolutely right, in the moment of teaching, what we've had to do is to become much more precise, more kind of collated, synthesizing more things into a smaller moment to, to, to provide that teaching. And I, I think it's too early to say whether that's a good thing or not, actually, because I, I think on the one hand, certainly if we were asked to audit what we've been teaching, I think we could do that really well and we could kind of rack and stack it. Uh, auditing what's been learned is much trickier because, you, because, you know, in systems like this, in kind of online learning systems, it's much harder to know whether you're really getting any purchase from somebody, you know, whether it's actually being understood or not, because... In a live situation, the learning is kind of played back to you in a very immediate way. Actually, you know, through the way they sit or they stand or they nod their head or they smile or they frown or whatever, you know, you're getting that feedback all the time. And, um, and that doesn't happen so easily in this kind of system. But I think, I think to support Joe's, Joe's point about creativity, we've all had to kind of go back to the drawing board and think, well, okay, what is it we're actually trying to teach here? And what is a reasonable means of trying to do that, given, given the kind of pipe work that we're going to be forcing it down over the next couple of months. Yeah, and, and I'd just like to add to that, I think response is actually one of the interesting things um, as a teacher when you're talking to a screen because you may get some things come up in the chat or, or a thumbs up or whatever it is, but you, you, you rely so much on body language and on eye contact when you're dealing with mm. people. And I think that that is one of the most challenging things that sometimes you're in the middle of explaining something and it can be technical, maybe conceptual, so on and so forth. And you're really not able to gauge 
whether whether it's landing or not, or so mm. it's, it's kind of just coming through at all. So you have to kind of trust that people are uh, keeping up with you, in fact. And what I've found, I think, is that um, I've taken some things too much for granted, some processes and, and methodologies and thinking strategies that I think that the students, I'm, I'm blabbing away at the screen, I think that the students are getting it. And it's only when I get them, you know, we've managed to do one day a week very kind of um, ordered way with any one cohort or one year. It's only then you're kind of going back over stuff and realizing that some people got it, some people didn't. Thank you both. Very insightful observations that I can definitely relate to. Now, I'd like to know a little bit about the impact on your own work as designers. Yeah. Well, I've just I've just got a load of stuff parked in the corner of my studio because it's 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 just not going anywhere until we can start using things like rehearsal rooms and theatres again. So there was, was one show that was kind of pretty much there, um, and another one that was much more at the kind of very preliminary stage, and they're just you know they're just in a kind of halting station for the time being. We you know we're we're talking about them maybe next summer. Um, but, let, but let's see, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a backup of work. <laughs> so I think we're going to have to all get in the queue, you know, to start putting this material back through theatres again. Um, so, so for me, it, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, the shutters just came down and, uh, and that was it. We kind of paused everything. We kind of, you know, myself and the director and lighting designer, we kind of thought, well, maybe we could carry on working you know, in the abstract about this, but actually I think we sort of decided not to. It felt it felt a bit bleak, you know, to be trying to work on it without a real sense of, of when and if we might get the thing off the ground. So for all our sakes, we just kind of um, wrapped, it, wrapped it up neatly and put it to one side for a bit in the hope that we'd get back to it later. Yeah, and my experience was probably a little bit different than that, but... Um, I had a project for a children's theatre show um, in, in we got some uh, development funding so we were able to kind of continue early in the pandemic able to continue back in a remote way and um, working with two writer performers and working with myself as a designer and um, a director that was in the UK we managed to kind of kind of develop the, the whole piece through uh, across Zoom and, and kind of formulate something to a point that um, it was going on in uh, Drift after the lockdown lifted. We managed to do a very controlled um, kind of, you know, standing the, 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 the material that was developed during the, the period and kind of spend a week there um, getting it on its feet. Um, so that felt kind of very worthwhile. And again, it, it forced... Uh, you know, people were a little bit unsure of it, and then people were learning on the job of how it was the communication was going to happen. But um, it still got to the point and just got funded now for production for the Council next year. Um, so it, it kind of, I suppose, it was all screen based, really. But ultimately, that's what the Arts Council was seeing in the in the mm. proposal. But, you know, so it kind of suited purpose. And I think that there was moments during that period where. Um, we were a bit mindful that we're, we're kind of ended up making a little mini film or some sort of YouTube clip as opposed to a, a theatre piece. And I think, you know, that, that was one of the things we were against. Um, but other than that, I think there's been a whole range of, um, with the Arts Council, you know, there was a, a second strand of bursaries that went out there. And I mean, I was seeing designers that 
uh, you know, from over the years, we'd never have considered putting in an arts council application, you know, and then putting them in and being successful. So I think that that's been quite a good initiative. Um, less about, um, uh, you know, realising it directly into a show, but more about their research into specific areas. So I think it's, it's forced um, designers to kind of do a bit of the paperwork and, you know, again, uh, consolidate their ideas and their notions onto, into text and put it forward. And I, and I think it's given the opportunity for, um, you know, with if, if you do manage to get that bit of support, to um, maybe to stop going job to job in a panicky fashion and uh, consolidate and think about what your career can be and will be in the future. So maybe we can say that one of the positive aspects of this terrible pandemic is that it has brought to the fore some of the shortcomings in the industry, particularly given that the large majority of professionals are freelancers. And I suppose that Lizzie has initiated conversations around the precariousness that many professionals face and the need for more funding supports or supporting structures for the arts ecosystem. Would you like to develop a little bit more on that? I, I do think, though, that one of the things that, that has been shown up really vividly is, is just how seat of the pants the art sector is in this country. Um, I mean, it, it, it is the case that the, the arts are almost entirely freelance. You know, there's, there's hardly a single artist or designer who could claim to be in regularised employment. And, you know... It, I would just say, by way, of, by way of contrast with that, and it, you know, it's not like I'm a kind of hundred years old or anything. But um, when, when I graduated, my first job was in a theatre that had two resident designers, um, five or six people in the construction shop, about the same number of people in the wardrobe, two or three assistant designers, uh, and that was that was not a big theatre. That was a regional British theatre. Um, and there was also a theatre and education company on the permanent payroll by theatre as well. Um, now, you know, when I go around to work at theatres, there are no staff in those theatres at the creative end of the practice, or hardly any. And, you know, we, without wanting to be, you know, all kind of revisionist and reactionary about it, and, we, and without wanting to, you know, su to suggest that it's not right that people do kind of navigate their own way through all this, the fact of the matter is that that is, that is not a good set of circumstances for a country that wants to have um, an interesting and thriving and successful and effective arts industry. That is not a good set of circumstances because um, you can actually lose it overnight when you do that. And although, you know, we are going to come back from this and, you know, the theatres are going to open again and people are going to go back to work. Um, but I, but I think we need to learn some proper lessons from this about how we manage and look after and cultivate a community of artists and designers in this country. Um, because, you know, when we, we talk about the ecosystem, there is no ecosystem. <laughs> there are just, there are individuals trying to work their way through this. There are individuals trying to work their way through this. And I think it's, I think it's a profoundly damaging and disappointing state of affairs. I agree. The pandemic has indeed highlighted the pain points in the industry, and I would dare to say society at large. In fact, I know a good few people that are considering changing career because despite the aids and funding supports, this situation has made it very evident that, as you were saying, Liam, 
there is no real ecosystem that we can rely on and it is way too precarious. So it begs the question, how can we change this state of affairs? I think we have to ask some really hard questions of ourselves, actually, you know, in, in terms of what we think is okay with regard to our treatment of arts and artists. It, it, it's fascinating to me that the radio and the television are filled, is filled with people advocating for, you know, the pubs and the restaurants and, you know, the greyhound industry and horse racing and goodness knows what. But the amount of advocacy that you hear from the arts in the media is, is next to nothing, actually. And the amount of discussion that you hear about the arts in the media is next to nothing. Um, the stuff in the print media is next to nothing. So, you know, it, it does make me kind of slightly irritated when from time to time people want to tell a story about the country, which is about, you know, how great we are, the arts and cultural industries, and how central it is to you know, the Irish nationhood and so on. Because I'm afraid that is not the lived reality of it. Do you have anything to add to that, Jar? I'd, I'd agree with Liam, very much so with the kind of paucity of even knowledge around the arts outside of certain sectors where, you know, um, it feels like sometimes we're, you know, preaching to the converted very much when we make these discussions and we all feel like we're making sense but it never goes any further. So and I don't know whether, like certainly the kind of tourism and heritage boards and all the rest of it, they very much sell ourselves both in our landscape and our, our, our kind of artistic heritage. And I think that that there is a kind of a, a disconnect, I think, between understanding that, you know, something, you know, like, I don't know, the Patrick's Festival weekend or any of the arts festivals, you know, can generate a lot of money coming over, you know, people coming over to, to see the work, but it doesn't, it, the, the comparison of that spend and how much that brings to the exchequer doesn't seem to get across to the artists in any way. And um, because Alan has that funny thing, I mean, it's brilliant that you can more or less know everybody and you'd almost have a number of everybody, that, you know, to call within the arts, but it just shows you how few people can really survive at it as well. I think, you know, um, maybe, you know, through, you know, more screen-based activity, maybe we're able to hit a bigger market and maybe we can stretch our wings outside and, and, and let people know um, how active we are because I think, you know, we acknowledge that we punch above our weight for the tiny amount of people that manage to, to work in this sector and maybe by drawing in, you know, making the rest of the world or other people notice it, maybe that's the way you can get a bit more political support or, you know, and, and, and obviously... You know, looking at what kids are doing in school, you know, my young kids are, you know, certainly their artistic reference is, it has a greater range. It goes beyond the Renaissance, you know, into more contemporary stuff of what they're doing in class. And I think that it's, it's a kind of a long game, you know, that if we start there and, you know, they're looking at more varied work. And, you know, if you could get kids to children's theatre, I think you'd be doing a lot um, to develop it. And I think that's one of the areas that's, that's really underdeveloped here, as far as I can see, you know, that um, there's just, there, there should be more of it. And I think from talking to different people from different places, it's, it's a bigger area and I think get people in at that stage. Um, like I, I saw The Ark has a pretty good outreach sort of program as, it, as regards kind of children's theatre, but, um, and they seem to be running several things. I mean, I saw something that, um, uh, through the Science Week, kind of art and science blend, and that seems to be an easier sell 
because it's got that kind of educational, it's, it's tangible as, as to what the children are getting. Um, but I think it's, it's sometimes, maybe that, that's why that gets funding, but sometimes just maybe just trusting the fact the arts can be of value <laughs> and should be funded for that reason and kind of trusting that, that we're going to do a good job, you know. And it's, you know, if you think about it, all this time that people have had on their hands, there's never been a greater demand for content you know, particularly coming across to Netflix and all the rest of it. But I mean, you know, so many people in our industry do, you know, the, tr the training is something similar and it's it's just real making, and, and people are very knowledgeable about film and TV now and they, they speak quite academically about it because they understand its form, you know, more than the, the surface knowledge. Um, and I think, you know, live performance can have exactly the same thing, but it has to, it has to be pushed, you know, that people actually get to see a show at some stage in early life. Yeah. Schools, I guess, you know, schools going to art centres and, and maybe bringing artists out to schools could be a big a big thing. And I think that's a huge, that could be a great kind of an initiative and um, kind of a job, you know, for some artists to do, to come out and do various things. I think, again, one of the things I'd be really interested in, in us looking at is, is the creative space in the primary and secondary curriculum. Um, you know, as, as Joe quite rightly says, you know, positioning artists out in the curriculum can be an incredibly valuable kind of life-changing thing for people. Putting, putting the experience of theatre into the curriculum can be a really valuable life-changing thing. But, but those, things, those things take, you know, state infrastructure and state support and state legislation. And you have to have, you have to have a government with an interest in the arts or, and a belief in the arts in order to make that possible. And I think we're a little one short of that, actually. Yeah, no, it needs that vision and that trust, you know, and um, what you see so often in the arts that, that people gain the trust after spending all their own time and energy for a couple of months and eventually someone sees the show and they kind of go, oh, you're great, brilliant, you know what I mean? And us that have been working in the area realise that someone's made a serious sacrifice here, you know, and, and I think that's one of the troubling consequence of this pandemic is that I think it's brought people out of the dream phase that, you know, in their early 20s, late 20s, early 30s, thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this because I love it and I'll, I'll get there eventually, that there's been a kind of a short, sharp shock. And I think we're seeing that in our own students, even even our young, you know, 18, 19 year olds, that sort of, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a loss of some of the, the kind of idealistic thinking about, you know, kind of pursuing a passion career because it's the right thing to do and you love it. That's, you know, the danger is that we're going to, yeah, like you said earlier, Nadia, that, that we're going to lose some people because of circumstance. I think this tangentially links back to our earlier conversation about your own practice as designers, in that there is a certain element of frustration and exhaustion among many that were working on projects that got cancelled or postponed, and they had to reimagine them, or even those who had to push forward and keep working on projects they, we, they knew were not going to happen. But regardless, they had to invest the time and energy. And then things got postponed or cancelled again. So we got a bit of a groundhog day. And do you think that in itself has taken its toll on a lot of people in the industry? Absolutely. Yeah, and the problem with that is that you know, when you expend, like, you've got a finite amount of energy, and if you expend a lot of your energy on worry or fear, obviously, um, you know, it's the creative bit 
is suffering because you've only got so much to give. And if it happens project after project, I think, you know, reality comes knocking on the door. And without that sort of a, a, a structure, you know, in society, in place for, for artists to have some sort of career path, much like everything else, because, you know, it's, it's a transactional business that people come and pay and see a show and, you know, there's money made and yet supported. But, like, there is, there, there's, there's a business-type model that, that could be put on by governments if they chose to do so, where, where you know, looking across into the film sector, where there's guilds set up, and there's, there's you know, if you want to be whatever you are, and, um, you know, you start off as a junior, then you get onto a medium and a senior, and so on and so forth, and there's still room for excellence to excel beyond and go in a different path. But there's a baseline structure that we can, we can work to, so that, you know, when you want to go... I don't know, get a mortgage, buy a dog, whatever it is, you know, you've got, you've got options and you're not, you're not having to exist outside of everything your entire life because you just happen to like drawing and making stuff or designing things or reading things, writing, whatever. Anything to add to that, Liam? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, I think part of the dilemma is that to, like, to get good at something, you have to have a couple of goes at it. And one of the, one of the challenges with, with being freelance is that those goes can be really few and far between. Um, so, you, you know, for some of us, when we when we went out into practice, we, we were quite quickly doing, you know, one show after another, and you you built up, you know, a, a set of muscles and skills and abilities out of the fact that you had you had lots of practice, you know, in the, in the professional context. And the the dilemma, I think, for all designers at the moment is because everything is project funded. You know, very, very little chance to glue more than one experience to another experience in a, in a relatively short amount of time. And that's, that's really diminishing in terms of your ability, actually, because so much of your ability is based on experience, you know, you, and there is, there is no replacement, actually, for, for knocking out quite a bit of work. And the, I think one of the things that, that I think is really um, inhibiting is that the stakes on every show that you do are so high. Um, and if you don't kind of hit every one of them out of the ballpark, you've actually got a bit of a problem. You've actually got a bit of a problem. And, and what, that, what that can do, I think, for a lot of, for a lot of people is um, actually oddly make you a little bit risk averse because you think, you know, there's certain things that just have to go well here. You know, this is, this is not the time for reinventing the wheel. But sometimes we should be reinventing the wheel. And as I say, this very kind of short-term approach, one-off approach that we have to projects, I think it really prescribes against that. And, you know, the proof of that is, you know, pick any number of other countries where practitioners in, enjoy, you know, a, a much more sustainable career path. And look at the quality of the work that gets generated because people can build experience, build relationships, you know, start to think a little bit more ambitiously about what they want to do. Um, so, you know, we, we, we cut our own noses off despite our faces when, when we, when we continually to force us to do all these very short term one-off project thinking. What do you think then of the initiatives that are trying to implement the universal basic income for artists, and how do you think that might work? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, 
it's the measuring of things becomes the problem. It's very much like, um, you know, when you're a student, when you're getting assessed on your work, like, you know, what, what do we trust? Do we trust the fact that a critic comes and writes a couple of reviews? I mean, that's what most people promote on their, you know, their show taglines, if they were, you know, websites, whatever it is. So it, it's measuring what's good and bad work is kind of the, the tricky thing. So do you just give everybody a wage and say, right, away you go, that there's a common a common wage? Or is it more like Astana functions where you're kind of voted in by a collection of people? Um, I think it's it, there's a kind of a fairness that probably would have to be agreed upon. Um, but I think that there's certain areas of it, there's a kind of a... It's, it's a well-established path, isn't it? I think even in the more creative um, roles of, of making a show. So, so maybe there's, there's some sort of a kind of a bit like, yeah, some, some sort of a, res, you know, a, a stipend or something could be done for a period of time and maybe everybody gets one. But, but perhaps that's what the bursary is kind of um, encapsulating in some ways. It doesn't address the company dilemma of, of kind of working together as a collective, which I think is, Liam is dead right, it's really important and you kind of grow together and you get those kind of shorthands that you need to get on and take more risks in the in next projects, you know, because you're always battling against budgets in one way or another. So, but, yeah. I mean, I, uh, for me, I mean, I, I, I think the, I mean, the idea of a living wage is a separate thing, really, because I think, you know, everybody, you know, <laughs> moderately civilised society ought to be able to get a, get a living wage, whether, you, you know, whether you're an artist or, you know, working on the counter at Tesco, you should be able to get a living wage. Um, I, for me, I think I think what I'd like to see is just a lot more structured opportunity. I'd, li I'd like to see theatres, I'd like to see more theatres making more work, actually. That's what it kind of comes down to for me. Um, because then there's more opportunity for people to put their hat in the ring to, you know, to try and make those connections and and and, and get stuck into it as a, as a career. So, um you know, I, I, I think organisations like Estorna, I, I think it's sort of very laudable in, in its own way. Um, but I suppose I'm sort of vaguely suspicious of artists being entitled to something that everybody else isn't entitled to. Um, and in that sense, all I would really like to see is much, is much more structured opportunity and much more long-term, properly invested planning about an arts infrastructure. Um, so that more people could get the opportunity, more people could get the experience, both in terms of making the thing and in, in terms of experiencing the thing. It, I mean, the, the reality is that building a really fantastic arts infrastructure is comparatively inexpensive. You know, when you, when you look at the billions of euros that, that get invested in, you know, various kind of practices, um, in this country and around and about, you know, the, the value that the arts return for every buck that you put into them is really extraordinary. It's really extraordinary. But as I say, you, you know, you have to have ministries and governments that, that are actually interested in it and think it might be a good idea. And then I, I think it's remarkably doable. So the pandemic has made it evident that the sector lacks structure, although this country has such a rich cultural offer, and as you were saying earlier, uh, it also has a remarkable return of investment, but yet the arts remain a bit neglected. Are we going to learn the lessons? 
for some reason, we've, we've just never managed to acquire the same kind of leverage that um, things like the GAA and Greyhound Racing and those other, you know, kind of things have. Um, part, of it, part of it comes back to education, actually, to Joe's point. And, you know, sports play a really central part in most kids' educational experience in this country. And I, and I think sports educations and sports nationally benefits hugely from that because, you, because young people get a lot of exposure to sport, you know, the kind of required part of their, their education. And, it, and it, in many cases, it, it stays with them for life. And, you know, you get a, a genuinely fantastic organisation like the GAA, which survives because of that kind of grassroots um, investment. If you... If you want to get a really great arts infrastructure, you, you do have to start with the young, actually. And you have to start building expectations in people that they will access the arts. And, and not just accessing the arts as, you know, as, as some kind of therapeutic pastime, but accessing the arts because they're kind of meaningful, challenging, politicizing, troubling experiences you know which is which is i think what what good art needs to do and i think too often you know the, the arts become um you know a kind of kind of high days and holidays thing um and you know st patrick's day is a good example of that actually you know it's one of the few occasions where you can point to a bit of arts investment and you just think wait well, you know that's it's just not good enough it's just not good enough. You know, we need to be much more sophisticated, much more mature than that if we're going to build something really interesting. Not that St. Patrick's Day isn't a fantastic thing. But of course it is. Of course it is. Um, but, you know, just, just to harp on about education for another, for another minute, um, and obviously everybody that, that comes to study with us pretty, pretty much will have done the leaving, the leaving cert and... Um, you know, one of the things I will quite quickly want to talk to them about is, is plays and texts and scripts and thinking about those things as, you know, possible future films or, or pieces of theatre or whatever. And um, it, it, it is just slightly depressing, the, the incredibly um, kind of stultifying experience they've had of drama in schools. Um, and, you know, the fact that their they're encounters with really great drama, have, have not made them interested in drama. They've actually done exactly the opposite. Um, you know, it's had to come the life sort of squeezed out of it for them. And rebuilding that's a hell of a bloody job. Yeah, I think, I think it, it, it is going to require a really deep think with the right people to get that syllabus corrected. Because you have another funny thing that's happening because of things like uh, brilliant things in the web, like uh, on Pinterest, you can see a great way to make a Christmas decoration by adding a bit of felt and a bit of this and a bit of that. So kids come home with something and you look at it, you kind of go, wow, that really is quite good, that thing. You know, and what you realize is that you're looking at a series of tricks, which is great. Mm that the, the teacher has not really had the deeper comprehension of, of what they're trying to show the kids. So they're making kind of eye candy, but they're not, it's not real arts training. I mean, I think it's whetting the appetite for people that are, are, are interested in the arts or have an attitude towards it. Um, but there's, there's kind of a deeper journey that needs to be gone on there. And I, and I think I wouldn't even blame the teachers necessarily. I just think there's, they haven't been uh, given the syllabus or told what to do or given the advice or the training, you know? So I think it's, I think it's a deep 
a solvable problem, but I think it's it's quite a deep problem. And I don't think it's going to go away by just doing the same thing or turning out a new trick. I think that, you know, I, I think if we got that right, and, and I think, you know, the thing is about with kids as well, you're going to, while the kids are learning and adapting and changing and, and, and becoming more educated, you forget that when the parents see it, they're also, you know, they yeah. become there already wanting to receive and be happy with their kid doing stuff and they're learning through their kids educational experience so so we could have quite a dynamic effect really quite quickly you know if it but it, it requires you know probably people that know what the end goal is to kind of be allowed to come in and talk uh, you know and, and give some direction to the likes of, of you know the, the syllabus planning for primary and secondary education you know uh, I think it yeah it kind of comes from there I can't see any other way you know because you're only ever going to get a couple of people that are able to bring their kids to the theatre you know on their own bat you know for, for many reasons whereas you've got a captive audience in the schools so they ain't going anywhere you know mm-hmm. and most of them once they're in it together they're going to love doing it anyway you know Actually, that reminds me of the Finnish education system, particularly in primary schools, where teachers have more freedom to experiment with different methods and models based on a more holistic approach and play, which has proven to be more effective for learning, taking rid of the emphasis on grades and the inherent competition that an exams-based system endorses. The kind of Steiner-based education system, yeah, yeah, where you're yeah. learning mathematics through building a theater set and play, playing geometry on the ground, and absolutely, yeah, I think that yeah. you know what, what we have is a whole lot of students um, coming sometimes, and you give them their first grade, and they do really well, and they're actually they just can't believe it, and it's involved mathematics, it's involved creativity, it's involved everything, you know, reading, writing. And they just, you know, sometimes they're teary, saying, I've never got anything above, like, a C. How can they say, are you sure this is right? <laughs> you know? But it's just because, they've, you know, there's been one way to, to measure and show excellence. And, you know, and unfortunately, that hasn't been their way. But we get them here and they're, they're top level, you know. So there's, there's that sort of like, problem. Interestingly, you sometimes see that. I don't know whether you've seen this, Joe, but you sometimes see it playing the other way as well, where somebody has had a really successful leaving side experience and, and they come into art school and suddenly they're not quite so successful anymore because they're not, <laughs> because they're not very good at dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity. And one of the things we do really well at art school is uncertainty and ambiguity, you know, because we're very kind of process driven rather than answer driven. And some students, are, you know, thinking of somebody I'm kind of working with at the moment, who was, you know, a bit of a whiz at school and uh, really enjoyed it and, and, and did very well. Now suddenly finding actually there's this other side of the brain that you can use. Uh, and it can be a little bit painful, actually. You know, that, that can be quite an uncomfortable discovery, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that kind of, it kind of relates back to something you were kind of probing at earlier, Noelle, about, you know, how do we get more of the decision makers, the people that sign the checks behind us, you know, and in a lot of ways, the kind of artistic mentality of, of the ambiguity and living in the abstract and kind of needing that time to look out the window and kind of reflect, I think that that can sell us short sometimes and commu- miscommunicate us as, as messers, you know, and then we're being lazy, drinking lots of cup of coffee, whatever it is. And I, I think there's a bit there that we need to clean up our act. You know, like I was doing a show there with the theatre company out in um, 
in Mermaid, and because it's a seaside town, and there was a photo op, and I was really impressed with the directors when they said, you know, that there was the, 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 the whoever the photographer said, oh, look, we'll go get ice creams, and we'll stand outside the Mermaid Art Centre, and because it's a seaside town, I'm in the Art Centre, and the directors said, no, 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 this sells the wrong idea of us working really hard yeah. here. Like, we understand the notion, but it's, well, and they were so right, you know, and it's, yeah. the, it's those simple things, some of those shots, you know, but there's a kind of a professionalism, and there's, there's a bit of thinking in how we communicate and, and, and market ourselves out there, you know, a little bit. I think it would go a long way. Yeah. It's, I, I always think it's quite interesting, you know, if you look at the way um, architects and architecture is, is presented, and, you know, everybody, whenever an architect speaks, we, you know, we kind of shut up a little bit and we sort of listen to them and, and take heed. And, you know, anybody and everybody is kind of deeply invested and interested in architecture and cities working and their houses working, all those kinds of things. They take it, they take it, they take it really seriously. And I think architects have been really skillful at representing themselves well and articulating what they do really well and and in many cases reaping benefits from that I, I would argue that artists are fulfilling exactly the same set of functions almost as a mirror of the way architects work it has a different kind of visibility but it, but it is you know it is absolutely the the arts are absolutely the poetics of a, of a place in the way that architecture is its physicality and I, I think I think Joe has absolutely nailed it right, for me. You know that we do need to get a lot smarter at how we present the case and how we present ourselves and how we make the how we make the argument. I think there is also that element that has to do with how artists are perceived by some sectors of society, even if this is a bit of general of a generalization. For instance, in this country, you have far more respect for artists than in mine. Still, I think artists are stereotypically perceived as sort of bohemians or at least out of the norm. And sometimes you hear these comments from quite a few people saying, get a real job. Yeah, but I think I think that's absolutely something we can work with. It's the you know if you look at business and they are celebrating risk takers in, in small to medium enterprises and they get it really right that they have you know go to the enterprise board they have um, the, the the particular grant for feasibility grants for testing out an idea just going and, and trying something out and they're really supporting that but they've embraced that idea that they are free thinkers and I mean it's it's rather than kind of putting it as a, as a you know, a bad mark on you, you kind of go, no, we are going to be, we're going to make mistakes. That's it. But you're going to see some stuff you've never seen before, you know, and it's, and, and I, I think that's what, strangely enough, the business world has managed to capitalize on more than the arts, even though the arts would perceive themselves as absolute front, frontliner, you know, frontline thinkers there, you know, and, and you see like a funny thing in the business world as well, if you look across, you know, arts council applications, look across enterprise board applications, that, you know, the kind of d design thinking strategies and methodologies have absolutely gone into a lot of these business programs, you know, and the things that we would have called our own that other people are taking the best bits out of. So it's, you know, we, we, we've kind of, we've easy comparisons we could make to learn a few lessons, to preserve the freedom that we need, because we do like to be, you know, out there and a bit different and all the rest of it. But to be able to uh, speak in a language which is 99% of the way 
the world speaks, which, which, which brings in the income and the supports and all the rest of it. Rather than speaking in language that only communicates it to the 1%, who we already have well tapped up anyway. You know, you look at the likes of all these corporate, like I'm really lucky that it's, it's, it's pulling in an amazing selection of people from all over the world at the moment working in all these different sorts of uh, internet type companies. Um, and, and, it, and, you know, maybe there's, you know, to, to be able to communicate with them and draw down on some of their, you know, support and infrastructure and global networks could be a great way for the arts to progress you know, and justify what we do. I agree that in the world of corporate business and specifically IT startups, there has been an adoption of free thinkers and creativity which is, you know, evident on UX design or the Scrum framework, but not only. However, I believe the arts are often politically uncomfortable in that it questions social configurations and conventions that challenge that same corporate world and its ideologies. But, but it's nevertheless, uh, it, they're, they're an evil that's there, so they ain't going away, <laughs> you know what I mean? So you can either choose to put up a fence against your nasty neighbors, or you can take it down and try to figure out a way to work with them. And I mean, it's, I'd be in favor, uh, I completely understand the sentiment. I may feel another way, but to progress, I think we, we need to kind of work together and, and figure out a way to make it better. You are absolutely right. Uh, but I also hope we don't lose that element of criticism that I believe uh, is essential for the betterment of society. Anyway, we are running out of time, unfortunately. It's been a brilliant conversation and I'm delighted you had the time to join me for this episode of A Stage Left. Thanks a million. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. It's a great, great, good initiative. Well done. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We will be back soon with a new episode. The Irish Society of Stage and Screen Designers podcasts are possible thanks to the Design and Craft Council of Ireland. 